You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, I ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the pew Bibles there next to you or, or on the ground and go to page 729. Or you could, if you have a Bible and you struggle to find it, you could almost turn right to the middle of your Bible and you're probably landing in Psalms, Proverbs, or Isaiah and just keep going to the right so you see Jeremiah and they keep going even more and you'll find the little book of Lamentations there. And today we begin a three-week series, I'm sorry, a six-week series, uh, just, I just doubled it for you, on, on learning to lament, on suffering and grief and hope in the rubble of life. You know, our church family over the last couple months and last few weeks has been through a lot, um, experienced a lot of suffering uh, from cancer diagnoses and treatments and passing of family members and church members uh, going on to see Christ face to face now. And we need to learn to suffer well together because really what's happening is either we are in the midst of suffering or we know someone who is suffering or we are about to suffer. It's unavoidable. And it's not a Christian platitude. It's not a cheesy, mean nothing saying when the Bible says that we need to weep with those who weep. Do you ever wonder why, why God says that? Because there is a profound and tear-producing sadness in this world. And we can't avoid it. Suffering and grief entered into the world through the Garden of Eden and will not be extinct until the new earth. So as Christians, we weep as those who weep because those who weep need to know they are not alone. that they are not strangers, that there are people in their lives that are not disinterested in what is happening to them, that the body of Christ, that we really are connected to one another and to function like a body is to respond to the signals of suffering. And we don't respond to be Mr. and Mrs. Fix-It for one another, but we respond as lamenters. We need to learn to lament, to express our grief in view of God, and not stuff it down. I mean, God has given us a category for this. There is a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this very thing, one out of 66 with this in view, and then dozens of psalms of lament. And today we look at the prophet Jeremiah's laments, and one scholar says about this book that Lamentations contains the complaints, the prayers, and the petitions that any one of us might address to God in our grief. Lamentations is not sanded down either. It's very rough. It's very raw. Shocking statements. Jeremiah will say things throughout this book that seem contradictory to God's character. They're the way he feels. Some right and some wrong. Because lament is the honest, vocalized Emotions of grief, right or wrong. And sometimes we need to vocalize the wrong so we can hear it. I'm really believing this right now. 
so we can hear it and that's so God can fix it and make it right. And now what's happening, we're just going to do one sermon in the book of Lamentations and then we're going to look at the various Psalms of lament over the next few weeks. And we're not going to do a whole series through this book because I think it would be way too much. I talked to a fellow pastor this week who they just went through the book of Lamentations and he says, I wish we would not have done it. It was too heavy. It was too much. So we'll do one quick overview of the book and I can just summarize really what's happening. Jeremiah is lamenting the unfaithfulness of Israel to God. They've broken the law. They've worshiped idols. They've turned their back on God and God has brought his discipline, his wrath and the Babylonians have invaded and they have destroyed Jerusalem. They've murdered thousands. They've ransacked the temple. They've destroyed the temple where they would gather to worship God. And they have dragged the people of God into slavery in Babylon. And Jeremiah sees it all and he is devastated. And he laments. Imagine a revival when you see and hear about the great awakenings and these revivals where people of God respond and amazing things happen. Imagine the direct inverse of a revival. The polar opposite of the amazing things that could happen. Imagine the worst that could happen to a city, to a country. This is what Jeremiah gives us. And this is poetry. You can tell by looking at your Bible how they try to organize the verses. They're arranged as poetry. And most of us, we don't think in terms of poetry. We think in terms of Paul's letters, neatly packed pipelines of truth. But you cannot read Jeremiah and you cannot read Lamentations as though these are just pipelines of truth. What you get with poetry is spaghetti. It's all over the place. And you've got to zoom out and get the whole picture. And it feels messy at times, just like spaghetti. And so is our suffering. It's messy and all over the place. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. And the Holy Spirit tells us through our brother, Jeremiah. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven me away and forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. Yes, he repeatedly turns his hand against me all day long. He has worn away my flesh and skin. He's broken my bones. He's laid siege against me encircling me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have been dead for ages. He has walled me in so I cannot get out. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I cry out and plead for help, he blocks out my prayer. He's walled in my ways with blocks of stone, has made my paths crooked. He is a bear waiting in ambush, a lion in hiding. He forced me off my way and tore me to pieces. He left me desolate. He strung his bow and set me as the target for his arrow. He pierced my kidneys with shafts from his quiver. I'm a laughingstock to all my people, mocked by their songs all day long. He filled me with bitterness and satiated me with wormwood. He ground my teeth with gravel and made me cower in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. Then I thought my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and I have become depressed. Yet 
I call this to mind. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. For the person who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is still young. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us. Help us learn to lament, to suffer well, to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep. Help us, King Jesus. We are incapable of living this way without you, our man of sorrows, who is acquainted with our grief. So help us. And it's in your mighty name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Songs capture moments. That's why movies have soundtracks. You can't imagine watching Lord of the Rings without a soundtrack. It'd be weird. But that's why rhythm and tone and, and the key of music really captures it. You wouldn't want a wedding scene in a movie to have a sad Willie Nelson song over it. It doesn't, doesn't fit. But that sad Willie Nelson song fits in another place. That's why you wouldn't want a Jason Bourne fight scene to have the Barney theme song playing over it. it it's not, it doesn't work. The music and the mood go together. And Lamentations is the sheet music we must have in our suffering. In our English Bibles, it's obvious what the title of the book is, Lamentations. But in the Hebrew Bible, in the Bible that Jesus and the apostles knew, it was not titled Lamentations. It's called something else. This is the title of the book in the Hebrew Bible. It is How. How. A question and a declaration. This book, like most of the books in the Hebrew Bible, they're named after the first word in the book. Like Genesis is beginning. Lamentations is how. How can this happen? How can this be? How come, God? And the second meaning is really, how do we keep going? How do we keep going in light of our suffering? Jeremiah helps us by showing us, one, by vocalizing our grief. This is what it means to lament. Learning to voice what is in our hearts to God. And throughout Lamentations, Jeremiah speaks as though he's Jerusalem. He speaks as though he's the nation of Israel. And then he speaks as himself. And what we see it here in chapter 3, verse 1, is the beginning of him speaking from his own vantage point. Look at verse 1. He begins to vocalize his grief here. I am the man who has seen affliction, suffering, under the rod of God's wrath. He saw the horrors, the death, the destruction, the pain, the mistreatment, a, a typhoon of suffering crashed into Jerusalem and specifically God's wrath against their idolatry. Now we need to pause here and just kind of gather ourselves and think about our suffering because all suffering and grief is not the wrath of God. There's a lot of people that teach that and they're way wrong. One, for Christians, if you are in Christ, 
There is not a single drop of God's wrath that you will ever personally taste, ever. Jesus took it all for us on the cross, paid in full the punishing wrath for our sins that we deserve, the Lord Jesus suffered. And this is the mercy and grace of the gospel. This is one suffering that you and I, if we are in Christ, we will never suffer. Christ did that for us. And his resurrection from the dead sealed that path of suffering shut. We can never enter into the wrath of God and the wrath of God can never chase us down. Because we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You are already a co-heir of the new earth and the universe to come. But this doesn't mean discipline. Loving discipline from our father does come. There are really three different ways that suffering and affliction arrive. Three ways. One, it's first one is sometimes our sin. Our actions brought about the situation, the consequences. And maybe God's discipline as as our loving father, not not to destroy us, but to renew us. So sometimes our sin brought it about. Secondly, the sin of others. That someone sinned against you. Someone hurt you. Someone betrayed you. Someone committed a crime against you or your family. And you see both of these in the life of David. He'll say in Psalm 51, I've sinned against you, God. And then he'll say in other Psalms, my enemies have circled around me. His sin and the sin of others. And the third one, it's probably one of the more common. All three of these happen all the time. But some of this is just, we live in a fallen world and we can't do anything about it. Cancer. Chronic pain. Death. Illness. These are the three ways that suffering arrives to us and those around us. And we can't, we can't ostrich ourselves, stuff our heads into the ground, and we must learn to lament the path that God has given us. And of course we want to avoid suffering and grief and trauma. Of course, we weren't built to handle it. But the reality is we can't avoid it. And listen, I want us to be so clear. It is not super spiritual to act like you can handle it. We should never pretend that we can handle it. When, when we act like we can handle our suffering, we are committing idolatry because we are acting like we are God, capable to handle life on our own, sufficient for our own troubles. Lamenting is relearning humanity. Lamenting is admitting that we can't handle it, which is why we need God's mercy. While we need Christ, while we need his resurrection power, if we can handle our sufferings, then we don't need Jesus. Then we don't need the Bible. Then we don't need the Holy Spirit. Then we don't need anyone to bear our burdens. Then we don't need anyone to weep with us. I know we've heard people say, God won't give you more than you can handle. That is idiotic. Because what's tucked into that phrase is the idea that you should be able to handle this. What's tucked into that phrase is a sense of self-reliance. I can make it. I should be able to do this. God won't give me more than I can handle. Destroy that. Because Christianity is the abandonment of all self-reliance. It is the complete abandonment of everything that we think we can do. We cannot save ourselves. We need Christ. We cannot sustain ourselves. We need Christ. 
We cannot even help ourselves. We need Christ. God will allow and God will give more than we can handle, which is why we need him. Why we will lament, why we uncork ourselves before God and pour, our, pour out our hearts to him. I think the best way we can work ourselves through Jeremiah's uncorking is his vocalizations of his grief, his poetry, his song is just to look at them by chunks and, and gather what he is saying and just feel the lament from him. And what you're going to hear are common things that people who are going through suffering may say, may think, and may tell you. And so we need to join our brother Jeremiah and learn how he is lamenting. Look at verse 2. Speaking about God, he says, he has driven me away and forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. What does this mean? He's saying, it feels like God has kept me at bay. It's like God is stiff arming me and he's turned out all the lights. I'm in darkness instead of light. He's saying, I don't understand what's happening. I can't see. I'm having a hard time making sense of it all. And everyone who suffers relates to this. We don't understand why. We can't see why. It's like we're closed off from understanding. And he says in verse four, he's worn away my flesh and my skin. He's broken my bones. Jeremiah is physically exhausted. Suffering isn't just an emotional. It attacks all of our humanness. Mental, emotional, spiritual, physical. I feel like I'm falling apart. And he says in verse six, He's made me dwell in darkness. Well, he already said he's in, what is he? What kind of darkness? He already said that in verse two, different kind, like those who have been dead for ages. This is extreme. He's saying something that people who go through profound suffering say, profound trauma say, I feel numb. I feel like I've been dead for ages. I feel numb. My body has no strength. If Jeremiah were here today, he'd probably just tell us, I want to lay in bed all day. What's the point? This sounds dark, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like the neatly packaged writings we get from Paul. But listen, it isn't wrong to pour out yourself before the Lord. Is it wrong when you hear someone speaking this way in your group or in, in your community, they're talking this way, they're not strange. Here you have a prophet of the Lord speaking this way. If someone was speaking this way, we'd want to like rush them to emergency counseling. But he's lamenting. He's pouring out what is just in his heart. Suffering has a way of shaking the carbonated bottle of our lives. And then we open it and it spills over seeking relief. There are examples all over the Bible of God's people saying wrong things about God. And what's amazing is that God doesn't edit it out of the Bible. God isn't embarrassed by your emotions. The Bible doesn't edit out the wrong or even the raw, honest thoughts that people have about God. I mean, you read the book of Job. Job says wrong things about God and they're not removed from the Bible. Rather, Job is renewed. transforms him and God renews us, transforms us. So you're going to hear Jeremiah say even more bizarre things, statements you wouldn't think you'd find in the Bible, but in some Bible study where people are trying to figure out life. 
the Bible's real, honest. You can see yourself in his statements if you've suffered. You see others that you know who are suffering in these statements, like in verse seven. He vocalizes his grief more. He has walled me in so I cannot get out. It's like God has trapped me here. He feels like his relationship with God is restricted. I'm walled in. I can't get out. I can't get away from this despair. Verse eight. This might be one of the more shocking. Even when I cry out and plead for help, God, help me. What what does Jeremiah feel? He blocks out my prayer. What's he saying? He's saying exactly what you hear people today say when they're suffering. I pray and it feels empty. I pray and it feels like it doesn't even go past the ceiling. I read my Bible and nothing happens. I'm just going through the motions. C.S. Lewis writes in A Grief Observed, which is the thoughts and meditations of when his wife died and he began to write things down. It's very similar to Lamentations. It's uncomfortable to read. It feels too honest, if you understand. And he says at one part, he says, you go to God when your need is desperate, when all their help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was just as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in a time of trouble? The double bolting door. Prayer blocked out. Lament. Verse 10, it gets even bizarre when he says, he is a bear waiting in ambush and a lion in hiding. He is saying, it sounds strange to speak of God in this way, but we've heard statements like this, not just in a metaphor, not just described as a bear. What Jeremiah is saying are, are these kinds of statements. Now what? What else could happen to my life? He's like a bear waiting in ambush. It's like, I'm going to turn the corner and some other bad news is going to come. More, it's just going to domino effect. What else are you going to do to me, God? What else could go wrong? See, sufferers, we are tempted to, towards skepticism of God's sovereignty, of his goodness and of his love. In verse 13, he says, he pierced my kidneys with shafts, with arrows from his quiver. Now, we don't ever talk about kidneys unless we're having UTI problems or whatever. But to the Hebrews, kidneys were, they described it as the vitals. They viewed these, as, this is the vital, the essence of your life, the vital organs. And he's describing, if you look at verse 12, he says, God has strung his bow and set me as the target, like Legolas, like Hawkeye. He thinks God has taken out that arrow and looked at right, right at Jeremiah. It's like saying it was a shot to the gut, a cut to the heart. You could even say, it feels like he stabbed me in the back. Verse 16 He ground my teeth with gravel. That is so vivid. 
You ever been at the beach and got some sand in your food? Oh, it's frustrating. You can't get the sand out of your mouth. You swish and swish and swish. Imagine a mouthful of gravel. Imagine our parking lot. It would be so painful. It would destroy your mouth. What Jeremiah's getting at is profound pain. Even, I don't want to speak. I don't want anybody to see me. I don't want to eat. It's like God's knocked out all my teeth with gravel and I'm cowering in the dust. I'm crying uncle to laying face down on the earth, terrified. Jeremiah's kind of saying, this feels cruel and unusual. Verse 17, I've been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. Here he is saying, it's been so long, I don't even remember what a good time is anymore. I don't even remember what happiness feels like. Verse 18, maybe the darkest of all. Then I thought, my future is lost, as well as my hope from the Lord. My future's gone. What's the point? It seems God has cut me off. God's cast me aside. When we hear people speak this way, we should not be afraid or worried yet. They're processing. We weren't built to handle these kinds of events. Humans were not made to handle suffering. That's why the God-man had to come and handle it for us, friends. Suffering can roll out the carpet to our wrong thoughts of God. And they've been rolling around in Jeremiah's head and heart, and he rolled them out for us. We all have wrong thoughts about God. Every day we have wrong thoughts about God. And suffering has a way of throwing the chum in the water. And the wrong thoughts of God swim up to the surface, splashing, making a mess, causing a scene. But lament helps us sort through them. That's why it says in verse 19, I remember my affliction, my homelessness. The wormwood is very bitter. The poison. I continually remember them. I can't shake them. Lewis says, and a grief observed that he thought going to the places, the restaurants and the, the walks and the trails that him and his wife loved, he thought it would be so painful to go there and see them. He said, but it wasn't. It was no different from everywhere else that I would go because her presence is now gone. So her absence is now like the sky. It's everywhere. I can't avoid it. I rem continually remember them. He says, and I have become depressed. Literally in Hebrew, I've collapsed. I've been brought low. It's been a heavy couple of months and weeks for our church. And just this past week, just preparing for Jan's funeral, I just sat in my living room. Like, I, I need to write this. I need to get some thoughts down and work on praying and the people that will be here. And I just sat alone and I just stared at the wall for 30 minutes. Just sat there. 
thinking and thinking and praying and thinking about Hans and Dale and Shana and John and just the family. What Jeremiah is showing us is that when we vocalize our grief, when we lament, this isn't just for getting things off of our chest. This is not just catharsis for the sake of catharsis. This is for the sake of, yes, getting things off of our chest, but so we can get our eyes back on God. Lament helps blow the dark clouds away, even though these things are dark, that all the things that Jeremiah has been saying, they are so dark. But what he's doing is he's blowing the dark clouds away so he can see the sun again. In our suffering, we, we think God has left, but he has not moved. But instead, what has happened is that dark clouds have rolled in, blocking out our sight of him. But he's there. And what Satan wants to do and what the ancient powers want to do against you in your suffering is they want to use your suffering as a tool to make suffering your focus. To make pain your tiny God. To make tears your tyrant over your life. But lament brings us back to the Lord. Lament is an underground tunnel back to hope. Look at verse 21. After all of these things, Jeremiah says, even though I've become depressed, I've been brought low, 21, yet I call this to mind. And therefore I have hope. This word yet is so important. All the things Jeremiah has said, all the things he has felt, they are real. They are not fake. This does not discount them. But this little word yet corrects them. Spins the entire chapter around. I love those videos that you see on social media of people who are in that slingshot ride. They're sitting there, sitting there. I don't know about this. This is going to be kind of scary. And then boom, they go up fast. Are you seeing those movie scenes and a plane crash and people are underwater and they, they pop the life vest and they fly up to the surface? I am the man who has seen affliction, yet this word yet changes. There's a velocity to this word. It changes everything in this chapter. You can add this little word yet to every, every verse. And you could read it now in the full-orbed gospel, gracious context of God. I'm the man who has seen affliction, yet. He feels like a bear waiting in ambush for me, yet. He makes me dwell in darkness, yet. But he, he blocks out my prayers, yet. In our suffering, we lament, but we also feel the velocity of gospel hope. Verse 21, this is how we grieve as those who have hope, as Paul tells us. How? Verse 21, yet I call this to mind, therefore I have hope. When the true character of God is now rushed to the mind, hope is restored. I call this to mind. In the rubble of life, access the reservoir of scripture, of truth. I call this to mind. Call. Summon the scriptures to yourself and demand that they serve you. Serve me. Help me. Remind me of God. Call in the reinforcements. Wield the sword of the spirit. Recall what? Look at verse 22. Because of the Lord's faithful love. 
we do not perish. Recall that his mercies never end. Verse 23, recall that they are new every morning. Recall that great is his faithfulness. Jeremiah is modeling for us how to preach to ourselves. Outside of God, friends, you are the most influential person in your life because you hear your voice, your thoughts, your words more than anyone else's. So preach gospel hope to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Recall the Lord's faithful love. And as Christians, those who are new covenant, knowing the cross and resurrection of Christ, you know his faithful love. You know Jesus' death and his resurrection for you and how he loves you, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That Jesus really died on that wooden stake for you. Jesus really shed his blood for you. No matter what the doctor says, Jesus shed his blood for you. He bore your griefs. And because of his great love for us, the Lord's love for his people is never debatable. Suffering and Satan, they want to skew your view of God's love. But the cross crushes all suspicions of God's love. We can't judge God's love on the quality of our lives. And this is a great danger for us who are very comfortable in the Bible Belt, Texas. We suddenly believe God's love and the quality of our lives go hand in hand. Just, just tease out that thought. If God really loves you and you, can, you really believe God's love because of the quality of your life, just see where that goes. That must mean that God loves American Christians more than Iraqi Christians. That must mean that God loves Tomball Christians more than North Korean Christians suffering and persecution. If we base God's love on the quality of our lives, this means we're the most loved people in all of human history. That is stupid. We banish that thought. We recall the cross, not the quality of our lives. We recall the resurrection. We recall his faithful, unquittable love for his people that we won't perish. That we aren't headed for hell because of Christ. And that faith in him, we're redeemed and we're secure. And this we call to him because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for we have everlasting life. Because God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. At the heart of Christianity is a suffering God-man. So it should not be strange to us when we encounter suffering. Our Lord suffered in our place, saving us, rescuing us, securing us, unleashing his mercies just have no end. They are new every morning, the Bible says. I love that it says his mercies never end because one day our hearts will stop beating. One day our breaths will end, but his mercy will not. And we will be with him forever.
And then we will rise from the dead and be reunited with our bodies made new and his mercies will not end. All the trends of this world, the suffering in this world will end, but his mercies will never end. They're new every morning. So there's unending mercies and then they're fresh every morning. They don't get stale. He gives us new mercies for today. There's things in life that we're going to experience and encounter that we're not prepared for, which is why he gives us new mercies every day. We could rehearse God's mercies for us every day. I think we should build that habit. Just while you're brushing your teeth tomorrow, tonight, if you do that. (laughs) Rehearse God's mercies. The biggest of all should be no challenge for you to recall the greatest mercy of all. I'm saved from my sins because of King Jesus. Two, I'm a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away and the new has come. I'm no longer defined by my sins, but now I'm defined by by Jesus alone. I'm not defined by my failures. I'm defined by Jesus alone. Three, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. He will lead me and he will help me today. Four, my eternity is secured. I am already a co-heir of the new earth to come. Five, I have Christian friends who love me and serve me. Six, I have the Bible. I have the whole Bible. Seven, I I just eat normal. I have a roof. I don't have to wonder where my next meal is going to come from. I have electricity. I have... There are 100,000 new mercies and fresh mercies from God every day that we don't see. Blood vessels doing what they do. Enzymes in your stomach digesting, doing what it does. Blood, white blood cells doing what they do. Car accidents we missed because we couldn't find our keys. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. Just consider what that means. It means God's not wishy-washy towards you. You might be towards him, but he is not towards you. His faithfulness to you isn't flimsy or, or limited. The word great means ample, huge, gigantic, strong, abundant. Do you know God's faithfulness? Do you know his love? Do you know his mercy? You find it all on the cross. All there at the cross of Christ, a naked Nazarene, a resurrected King Jesus. Believe today and receive his faithfulness. And then you'll say, like verse 24, I say, do you see what Jeremiah has done? He has said a lot of things in his lament. Then he's recalled things to his mind, and now he's revocalizing gospel hope. He said a lot, he recalled, now he's saying again, The Lord is my portion, the Lord's my reward, the Lord is my inheritance, the Lord is my desire. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. And the rubble of life, we remember God, who he is, our reward, and that he is first above all. Later in a grief observed, Lewis realizing this again about God 
says, if you're approaching God, not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but the means, you're not really approaching God at all. And this made him rethink all the questions he had. This made him rethink all the things he had written down. You remember the double locked door? Lewis rethought that. He says at the end, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze. As though God shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, peace child, you, you don't understand. Recall these things. There is a velocity to them. They can jolt you. They can bring you back to the surface. You can go through that underground tunnel of hope and see the mercies of God again. Get low, dig, humble yourself before the Lord. His eyes, his gaze is on the humble. That's why verse 25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Who wait. There's really not much that's immediate with God. We wait. We want Pop-Tart religion. It's not good for you. We wait. We wait for his faithful love to be brought to mind. We recall his mercies. Great is his faithfulness. This is the sheet music we need. Lament, yes. But great is his faithfulness. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.